I've never loved the water, but growing up our summer routine was to walk across the street every day to our family pool and swim. My sister Erica loved it. She would swim for hours. I, on the other hand, would jump in and then immediately jump back out and bundle myself with a towel and sit next to my mom on, around the side of the pool until the time when she would call out, okay, five minutes left, we're leaving in five minutes. If there's anything else that you want to do, please do it now. And I would jump back in and then I would jump back out. My lack of appreciation for the water was probably inspired by a mildly traumatic event that happened a few years earlier in my childhood. When I was five or so, we took a family vacation to California to visit my grandparents. My cousins were taking swimming lessons at that time, so mom thought it'd be a great idea for Erica and I to take swimming lessons as well. This was before our pool was finished, so I think this was our first experience with, with water. The lessons for me were short-lived. In an attempt to get me comfortable with the water, the instructor first wanted to teach me how to float on my back, which meant that I was just to lay there and she was supposed to hold me up. And I remember the water going in and out of my ears. I didn't trust her. I just met her. You've got to earn a little bit of that with me. So I rejected this proposal of floating with her holding me by screaming loudly, constantly, for quite some time. And I ended up going inside to play with G.I. Joe's. That's what I remember of my first swimming lesson. One more water story. When I was 13, I found myself in the shallow end of the family pool one Sunday after church for a baptism. The pastor was a Princeton grad, which at the time did not mean one thing to me, but now because I'm a super seminary nerd, I think it's pretty cool. In my mind, he was the stereotypical pastor, the one that I knew that I could not live up to. He was a little bit overweight. I can live up to that if I tried. He's really warm and caring. He smiled a lot, though he was known for crying at the conclusion of his sermons. He used to call me Deadeye because one day I was in the gym and I was shooting three-pointers and I just kept hitting three-pointer after three-pointer after three-pointer. He said, hey, Deadeye, you got good aim. I don't remember how I ended up in the pool that day. I imagine mom thought it was time that we got baptized, so Erica and I said, okay. But the one thing that I remember about this event for me was standing there in the pool awkwardly and the pastor saying, do you have anything that you want to say? And it was at that moment that I was kind of overtaken by emotions. Now, looking back, I know what he wanted. He wanted me to say something about my, my testimony, the reasons why I loved Jesus and was committing myself to Jesus, the reasons why I wanted to be baptized, but I just shook my head and I began to cry as a 13-year-old in my parents' pool. It took me a while to be okay in front of people, side note. Uh, my mom used to set me up and I'd say cute things that she thought were funny, so she'd make me say cute things in front of her friends, and then when her friends would laugh at the joke, I thought they were laughing at me and I would start to cry immediately. That made for good fun, family fun. So me crying in front of people isn't a weird thing, but I don't think at this point I was embarrassed. I think at a subconscious level, I was aware of the gravity of the situation. This was an important moment for me, one that could not be undone at any point, and one that would prove to be important for me later on in life. Karl Barth is an uh, important theologian of the 20th century. Some people would say he's the most important theologian of the 20th century, but he says this about baptism. When a man begins to believe whether we assume, as will assuredly be the case, that he is threatened by all kinds of suspicions, doubts, and reservations in respect of this enterprise, 
or whether we assume, as might well be the case, that he must agree and confess that he does actually begin to believe, either way, he will inevitably need the yes of his tiny but honest faith. This is Bart saying at that initial moment of faith, it demands action. It cannot be contemplation. It cannot just remain in your head. It has to move forward to action. He says he will want to establish a fact which no matter how improbable it might seem or how often or severely he might later oppose it, he cannot reverse as such. He will want to establish a fact which he cannot reject or argue away as a fact which he himself has established. Baptism seen here through this lens as a fact that cannot be reversed. For many of us, and I think it was intended for Bart this way, we have experienced this fact that cannot be reversed in our baptisms. Regardless of where we are, we cannot reject or argue it away. We have been baptized. N.T. Wright adds that it is impossible for us to be unbaptized. But here's the interesting bit about all of this. Despite its importance, we do a terrible job of remembering or celebrating our baptism. In our church, it might even have the potential of becoming a box that you check as opposed to a significant moment in your spiritual journey, but remembering our baptism is significant. The point of Bart's quote is to say that there will be moments when the proverbial stuff hits the fan, and it is at those points when this irreversible fact must be remembered. Around here, we've talked about baptism and other events or experiences as flags in the ground of your journey of faith. And indeed, there are days when those flags are needed, when the stuff hits the fan and you don't quite know which way is up and which way is down. And you can look back at these moments, Bart would say, as something that cannot be rejected or argued against or reversed. Tonight, I want to help us to remember our baptisms or perhaps maybe even inspire some new baptisms. And I want to do that by adding some depth to our understanding of its significance and meaning. For many Christians, the argument for baptism begins and ends with Jesus. He did it, so should we. Again, this is Karl Barth, and he kind of plays into this argument. He says, can the community of believers be neutral and passive in relation to the basic action of their Lord, leaving him isolated, as it were, in the concrete choice, decision, and act which he took therein? Don't you love these scholars and how it takes you like 15 to 20 seconds to comprehend what's going on here with this guy? Uh, When I was learning German, we were reading a lot of Karl Barth, and he's hard enough in English, let alone in German. You got claws on top of claws on top of claws and we have no idea what's happening here, but catch this. He says, no, the community is called to be Jesus's witnesses and to fellowship with Jesus. It must follow Jesus's act of obedience, his subjection to God, his solidarity with men, his acceptance of service, both of God and men. This is Bart saying that we need to be baptized. I think this is fair, but it misses some of the symbolism And in order to recapture it, we need to begin at the beginning in the book of Genesis. So I want to, this evening, kind of take us through the Bible and dip into a few water stories, pun intended, and try to recapture some of the symbolism of what baptism is all about. And we're going to begin with the first couple verses in the entire Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, 
and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about in our series on the Nicene Creed, we talked about God as creator. And we looked at this passage in particular because behind this passage is an immense um, context an ancient Near Eastern context that we have to understand in order to understand what it is that Genesis is doing. Sometimes when we come to this text, we come with 21st century questions. How did creation happen? Where for an ancient audience, they were reading with ancient minds through ancient eyes for ancient purposes. And the thing that was going on here was a little bit different. Now, what they would have seen in this text would stick out to them when, they, when we hit the clause, now the earth was formless and void. Tohu vavohu. Can you say tohu vavohu? Formless and void, wild and waste. Like it's, it's these terms where it's forming and shaping. In this passage, there's this stuff, this primordial stuff that God is moving and shaping and putting in certain places. We see this even throughout the, the days where he's separating light from darkness and the waters from above and the waters from below and he's making dry ground appear. He's, he's moving and he's shaping these things to happen. But what the ancient audience would have seen is now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep, the great mythical to home. You see, when Genesis was being written, there was other creation stories that were out there as well. One of those stories was the Babylonian account called Enuma Elish, which means um, went on high. And we have this story about the gods who were warring with one another. And we can see on the right there, this is Marduk, the, the patron god of the Babylonians. And this story was constructed in order for Marduk to be deemed the one who was worthy of worship. The goddess on the left of this picture is Tiamat, She's a water goddess, a chaos monster, someone who represents water and the problems therein. Now, what Marduk did in this story is pretty PG-13, so hold on to it. He killed her, filleted her from top to bottom, used one half of her to create the earth and one half of her to form the rakia or this expanse in the sky that would keep the waters up there from invading down here. This story in the Babylonian account is one where water and chaos was something to be feared, not something safe, not something that was tameable. But in Genesis, the spirit hovers over the deep. We see in this story, it's this complete contrast to the Babylonian account where God is creating in a way that's peaceful. And we can even see in this story that in a sense, creation is baptized in the waters of chaos. Where for God, it wasn't a threat so much as it was God's spirit just hovering over the waters as if to say, you have no hold over me, I am powerful over you. And here in this beginning story, we see how water plays this important role where God is moving it wherever it is that he wants it to be moved and he's keeping the waters up there from invading down here and he's making the seas and the dry land to appear. And it's out of this scene, this primordial watery chaos that God is bringing about order and structure. As this story continues, we meet the people of Israel. And this people of Israel is in 
bondage and in slavery, and they are under the, the beck and call of the Pharaoh. And for an, a Jewish audience, even still, this is the story. For Christians, we have Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And for the Jewish community, they have the Exodus. Because within the Exodus is freedom from slavery. It's God leading a people out of bondage into the promised land. And we remember the scene perhaps as Moses has led these people. We've gone through the plagues, which is basically just this this play on the Egyptian deities and how God is saying, I am much greater than each and every one of you. You've got nothing on me. And Moses leading the people out of Egypt and coming to this point of water and they're looking this way, seeing water and they're looking behind them, seeing the chariots and the Egyptians that are closing in fast. And they begin to say, Moses, you just led us out here to die. What are we going to do? And we hear this echo or this whisper from God saying, lead the people through the waters. And Moses holding up his staff and some of the older folks are just conjuring up their images of Charlton Heston in all of his glory. And we see a baptism in the waters of freedom. And this becomes the story of the Israelite people where they say, our God has been with us and our God has led us through the waters and our God leads us still even today. We can fast forward a bit to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and we see his cousin, John, who's tapping into some of this imagery, this Exodus imagery where people are out in the wilderness and they're being led into freedom and into the promises of God. And John starts this movement where people start going out into the wilderness with him to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism of repentance. And John is tapping into all of these Exodus themes as if to say, the time is coming when God will lead us into freedom yet again. You need to align yourself with this God and you need to align yourself with him by going through the waters of baptism becoming baptized in a play here in the waters of expectation, looking forward to what it is that God would do yet again. And in this interchange that Sarah read for us, Jesus shows up and in some of the accounts, John's like, whoa, man, I cannot baptize you. But we go through this this ritual and Jesus becomes baptized in an act of solidarity with us. And again, whatever it is that you're struggling through or going through in this moment in your life, whether it's broken relationships, bad finances, difficulty at home, difficulties with your jobs, what you have is a king and a savior who can identify with you in the midst of those struggles, in the midst of those problems, because he has been there. In fact, this baptism of the repentance or the forgiveness of sins, Jesus goes through in order to demonstrate how tied he is with the rest of us. And in this story, at the, at the climax of it, it says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And this is a pivotal moment in Jesus's ministry. Because where Jesus goes from here is hardly peaches and cream. 
This is a moment where Jesus takes on that mantle and that identity and begins to walk in the ministry that he is called to walk in. I think these words here bear repeating, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And remember Karl Barth and that irreversible act or those flags that we plant in the ground. And when the stuff hits the fan, what we do not hear often is, you are my son or you are my daughter in you, I am well pleased. What we hear is usually the sound of our own voice saying, what the heck? What's going on here? But what our baptism does is you can look back, you can see these words that were spoken over Jesus, spoken over us. Josh, you are my son, and I'm well pleased in you, even when the people around are saying otherwise. Even when you feel like a failure at home, as a husband, as a dad, even when you feel like a crap pastor, even when you are struggling, I love you, I'm committed to you, and I am pleased in you. And I think if we pause there and take my main man, Carl Barth, for what he's worth and think about those irreversible acts, how could that voice and that truth about us impact how we live? This has come up for me over the last 18 months or so where I've struggled with identity and I've struggled with what it looks like for me to live and to walk in confidence as a son. But I think that if we can tap into some of this and hear God's words over us, now this doesn't mean that we can be idiots, okay? I do believe in transformation and us moving towards a certain point, but I do think that there is still this this whisper and this hand on the back saying, I'm with you, I'm with you. And we see for Jesus how this plays out because he moves from this baptism in the waters of expectation or this baptism in the waters of affirmation, you could even say, and he's being led into being baptized in the waters of suffering because Jesus' story, again, moves him in a direction where he is going towards difficult moments in his life. And he identifies or he likens his death and his upcoming resurrection with baptism. This is a vignette where the disciples are wondering who's gonna have the seat at Jesus' right hand. And he says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, they said, what uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Pretty bold move. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. And this is the bit that I want us to see. There's a whole lot that we could unpack in this story, but what I'm just wanting to see is is something a bit different. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And he's talking about his death and his resurrection, the suffering that he was about to go through. Can you guys go through that? Can you live under that in the way that Jesus is is going to live under that is the question that Jesus is raising to his disciples. And we see here that he is looking forward to a baptism in the waters of suffering. When we think about baptism and the symbolism that it offers us as followers of Jesus, It becomes a participation. It becomes us being baptized in the waters of new life. 
Now, we don't think that this act of baptism is something that saves us necessarily, but we do think that this symbolism is rich and it's beautiful and it's deep. And Paul himself says in Romans chapter six, he says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The creed states, we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then it goes on into something that's different, but I think they're connected. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. There's an amount of hope here where we are baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but we also are looking forward to that day when everything will be made right. My hope this evening is that for those of us who have been baptized, regardless of where you were in that stage, I was a punk 13-year-old kid that was really concerned mostly with girls and basketball. But in, in the midst of my life, I have looked back to that weird day where I'm overcome with emotions and I don't quite know why. But now as a follower of Jesus, I can fill in the blanks and think that Jesus was guiding me and moving me and was with me even in the midst of those years. And for some of you, your baptism was at a weird point in your life and you've grown immensely since then. And I would challenge you to remember your baptism and to see that faithfulness that's been played out in your life where you have grown and the spirit has been moving you and guiding you and you have understood Jesus in a new way and you are becoming one who cares about the other. I hope that we begin to see those things. For other people in the room, as you just, you sit on the fence and you're wondering what's the importance of this or why should I do this? I want you to be aware of a couple things. One is in my few years of ministry, what I've seen from some people is a fear of taking this step because it is in fact an irreversible act. It is something that cannot be taken away. And I think for some people, it's a, a move that puts you into a community of people and you might not be ready to be there yet. But I hope that this evening you begin to self-assess and allow the spirit to work in you and through you where you can look in the mirror and ask those questions. Am I not doing this because I'm scared? Am I not doing this because I've got these hangups? Am I not doing this because of X, Y, and Z? And begin to wrestle with some of those issues. I hope that this evening what we see in this, as with most things, is an invitation. An invitation to partner with Jesus in restoring the wrongs in this world. To engage in conversation and to engage in relationships and to engage in the hard work of reconciliation that costs us something. And the step of obedience and the step of faith in baptism could be the impetus that leads us into that commitment. My hope this evening is that through all of this, what we see is a savior who loves us, a savior who has led the way for us and is asking us to walk with him, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him each and every day. My hope is that we can plant those flags in the ground that we can become the community that we are being called to become. 
and that we can move forward together doing the work of Jesus in this community.